3CR supporter. Listeners and welcome to Salam Radio Show. I'm your host Marushti, and on this show I have um, a really special event that I want to cover. Last night I attended um, a Black Palestinian Poetry Night organized by Janine Harani and uh, Sada Saleh, featuring talented and inspiring Australian Indigenous and Palestinian poets such as Samah al-Sabawi, Lujain Hurani, Lani Yuk, and Tony Birch. This event resonates with another important event which took place in Melbourne, Nam in 2019, and it was the Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference, which I felt it was a key kickoff point between the powerful solidarity between people of First Nation and Palestinians who share their ongoing struggle in living under colonization and share the vision of seeking their right of self-determination. The event is so important to all of us as a society as it connects us to those communities, remind us that we live in a settler colonial place and makes us understand furthermore the struggle of the colonized as well as their resilience. Listening to the poets last night, I felt all sorts of feelings. I felt outraged. I felt empowered. I felt inspired, but most importantly, hopeful, as their strong voices still resonates with me and will continue to do so and give me hope to keep um, help and uh, to keep fighting for a better world. And as Samah al-Sabawi once said, uh, to her friend Asil, uh, theater is resistance. I would like to echo her saying and add that poetry, music and art is resistance. Uh, without further ado, I'll play the recording from the event and leave you with Michaela Sahar, who was the MC for the night. She's also an incredible Palestinian poet and writer, and I would recommend to check out her work as well as the work of the poets on the night, if you haven't already. Uh, I'll need to give a language warning for this episode, as there will be description of violent events and swearing. So if your kids are around, you can listen later on 3CR's website, visit Salam Radio Show. As well, um, I will endeavor to post the two hours of the event complete. Um, 
on our Mixcloud account, Salam Radio Show. Um, and uh, yeah, and there were like a couple of um, discussions and some poems that I couldn't include in this whole hour, uh, even though I really wanted to squeeze all of it in. So I hope you enjoy it. I will play an announcement and then I'll leave you with Michaela Sahar. Three CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. So I want to start with an acknowledgement for our poetry gathering, which is being held on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the East Kulin Nations. And I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to any other um, elders from other communities who might be here today. As a Palestinian, I'm always awed by welcomes and acknowledgements of country in Australia, because it insists for us regularly that we encounter a multi-layered reality. These multiplicities intervene in public discourse and culture and start us on a path of inquiry. The resonance for Palestinians is momentous because in our political context, we're confronted with a denial of our existence and an erasure of our presence. Sometimes I fantasize about how acknowledgements might transform the political landscape for Palestinians in our ancestral lands when acknowledgement is precisely what we lack. But when I think about the, form or, uh, the format of acknowledgements, the language and idea of traditional owners, I know also that this country owes First Nations people so much more than that, because their ownership was not and is not conceptual but actual, not traditional but never ceded. And as a Palestinian in Australia, there's a symmetry in the struggles for justice here and in Palestine. And to me, as a guest in this country, they must be indivisible. Today's event was the um, inspiration of Janine Harani, who's sitting in the front. And also, Sarah Sala, who sadly couldn't be with us today as she's trapped in the Sydney lockdown. She texted me this morning to say, I hope you enjoy today and what's happening today is part of our great life's work. And I think she's right. And I think seeing you all here is, would make her incredibly happy. Maybe she gets to see this on live stream. Um, Sarah and Janine came to me earlier this year before the chaos of the um, 
recent events in, in Palestine before the Unity Uprising. And I think it is a testament to their incredible commitment and hard work that they've managed to pull this off today, um, given the amount of work that has also gone into activism over the last few months um, against the backdrop of the um, bombardments of Gaza, the expulsion of Palestinian families from the East Jerusalem neighbourhood of Sheikh Jarrah. So well done to Sarah and Shanine. I think this event also has an obvious uh, resonance with the Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference held in 2019, which was convened by Professor Gary Foley and Susanna Henty, who's also here today. Thank you. In the forward to their conference notes, um, Professor Foley and Susanna reflected on the relations between Indigenous and Palestinian people and the important friendship and activism specifically of, of um, Gary Foley and Ali Kazak. Ali Kazak wrote in 1993 the following um, about his uh, understanding, if you like, of Australian history and I find it a powerful expression of a Palestinian understanding of the connection between the two struggles. Kazak writes, on his arrival, Captain Cook was overwhelmed with Australia's beauty, calmness and virgin nature, so he plunged the British flag in its guts and declared, according to the custom of colonialists at the time, that this land belonged to King George III without any regard to its people. As settlers in Australia, Palestinians must hold the history and reality of violence in this country firmly in mind. We must recognise our positioning here as settlers and refuse complicity in the state project, which works to naturalise settlerism and to make it invisible. It's my view that liberation for Palestine is inextricably connected with a responsibility to fight behind and to amplify in any ways that we are asked to the fight of First Nations people here in Australia. Recently, Eugenia Flynn and Tasneem Samak, in the same spirit of friendship, wrote a piece for Indigenous X, highlighting the indispensable nature of these connections and affirming that black Australians and Palestinians continue to share a history and reality of erasure that has lasted far beyond the anti-colonial era. They go on to say both black Australia and Palestinians are yet to experience liberation in self-determination, governance and sovereignty. It's essential that we hold in mind the settler colonial projects that have done great violence to the indigenous people of both lands and that we re reject unequivocally the myths of those projects such as the disgraceful fictions of terra nullius or the land without a people. In 2013, the Australian ambassador to Australia said that Israel and Australia are both young countries who have made their deserts bloom. In bringing together Indigenous and Palestinian people today, we affirm in our bodies and our presence, the persistence, perseverance and survivance of our people against the dishonesty of the settler colonial narrative. Our first performer is the incredible Samah Sabawi. Samah clearly needs no introduction. 
but I'm going to introduce her anyway. Um, Samat is an author, playwright, scholar, commentator and poet who wages what she calls beautiful resistance through her art and work. She's a recipient of multiple awards, both nationally and internationally. Her theatre credits include the critically acclaimed plays Tales of a City by the Sea and Them. And we should be looking out for Them, yes, which is um, touring. 28th of July, Arts Centre Melbourne, be there for them. Um, she's also co-edited, um, the co-editor of Double Exposure, Plays of the Jewish and Palestinian Diasporas, and the winner of the Patrick O'Neill Award and co-author of I Remember My Name, um, edited by Vasey Vlasner, which was the winner of the Palestine, Palestine Book Award. She is the host of the webinar podcast series, The Book Room. Her poems are published in magazines and books, including West End Presses, With Our Eyes Wide Open, and Just World Books, Gaza Unsilenced. Her essays and op-ed pieces appear in various media outlets, including The Australian, Al Jazeera, Al Ahram, The Globe and Mail, The Age, and The Sydney Morning Herald. Samar received a Doctor of Philosophy from Victoria University for her thesis titled Inheriting Exile, Transgenerational Trauma, and the Palestinian Australian Identity. What Samar has not done is not worth doing. Welcome. So good to be here and to see everyone, uh, even with your faces behind the masks. It's great. Thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you for the organizers. Thank you, Janine and Sarah, for dreaming this up. And it's a real honor for me to be doing this with my co-poets today. So thank you. I like to always um, begin with my own um, acknowledgement to country. I acknowledge the original owners of the land we live upon, and the original owners of the land where I come from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Palestinian people under occupation. And to pay my respect to our elders, past and present, who safeguard our history, the Hakawatis and weavers of Dreamtime stories forever embedded in our memory. And I'd like to express my outrage for black children in incarceration and for Palestinian children in arbitrary detention and for families pulled apart and fragmented by the occupation and to acknowledge the traditional women of our lands, those who carve life from the sacred earth and breathe into it indigenous pride and those who give birth at the checkpoints and on the roadside. And to acknowledge the men who still stand dignified, their heads held high, unbent by the oppression. And may I express my admiration for those of you resisting with us the horrors of settler colonies and those who march with us for equality beyond the rhetorical apology the meaningless sorry, and the dazzling facade of Western civility. I come from colonized land. I stand on colonized land. And here I pay my respect to all freedom fighters, past and present, 
Palestine will be free and this land will always be Aboriginal. My first uh, poem that I'm going to read today, I'm going to regret reading it tomorrow because it's new. I started writing it two days ago, so it hasn't actually gone through the process, um, but I thought I'd try it out anyway because I'm sick of my older poems. Uh, so this one kind of um, was in reaction to, uh, I don't know if you watched on the news a few weeks ago, some artist in Italy sold an empty space as an installation art for a fortune. And it made me reflect on um, the idea of art, um, expensive art and white privilege and what it means to me as an artist. I admit it. Okay, I admit it, I am jealous. I can't write a column about a dress or some gossip-worthy actress or sell you splashed paint on canvas and call it art. I just can't play the part. I walk out on more theaters than I stay in, disturbed by all the money that's thrown on navel-gazing. It literally does my head in. Surely there is more than this. I clinch my fist, I raise my voice, I hold my placard high, and I shout, I'm here in this installation, in this theatrical production, in this protest. Art is all around me, on the walls of the city, on the faces of the homeless, in the smiles of the hungry. Art is all around you, too, if only you would open your eyes and see. I clench my fist, I raise my voice, I hold my placard high and I shout from the river to the sea, black lives matter, Palestine will be free, always was, always will be, end deaths in custody, Aboriginal land never ceded, save our humanity, global climate action now, save the birthing trees, life outside the exclusive white platforms. It is messy. It is terrible, actually. It's unfair, it's brutal, but it's beautiful and it's real. At least that's what it is for me. And while somewhere in Italy, an artist just sold an empty space for a fortune to protest some societal norm, millions will sleep on the streets, no space reserved for them. Can you understand the venom of capitalism and broken dreams? I admit it. I admit it. I am jealous. I wish I knew less. I wish I can splash blue on canvas and call it sky. I wish I could write a, a poem about a flower or a column about dressing for power or a novel about a love affair. I wish I could live without a care. Find an ocean of apathy and dump in it all this stupid empathy. I wish I could. I really do. I wish I could, but I can't. I am bound to this agony. My heart won't let me and the color of my skin, it will never set me free. So, uh, <clears throat> thank you. So that's an okay one, I should keep polishing. <laughs> So um, my third poem that I wanted to share is one I wrote um, last year. Uh, the, the UN had predicted that Gaza would be unlivable by the year 2020. 2020 came and then came 2021. 
and the people of Gaza just kept on living and life goes on for them. And so um, I wrote this poem. I imagined uh, the people of Gaza responding by declaring that life beyond livability, which is the word the UN used, was inevitable. They don't have a choice. I named this uh, the Song of the Besieged. The UN said Gaza was unlivable. But life beyond livability in Gaza is inevitable, like the rainfall and the winter storms. Life inside the walls, it's ferocious, like dandelions. It grows, it powers through like inexorable love, like an irresistible kiss, like the birthing of new life, beyond the statistics of death. Life beyond livability in Gaza is inevitable, like the sunrise, predictable, like the movement of the tides, invincible, like flowers in the desert, unassailable, like a smile on the lips of the beloved, unequivocal, like a word that splits a bullet in halves, indomitable, like a revolutionary march, unstoppable, like the earth's rotation, formidable, like a fist in the face of occupation, undeniable, like destiny, like freedom from tyranny, like justice for the refugees. So listen carefully. Two million captive hearts are beating off rhythm. There is no harmony beyond livability, only the inevitable. Beware the inevitable. We're going to stray away from Palestine now. Um, we don't really stray away from Palestine, but this next poem I wrote in response to uh, Saudi Arabia's bombing of Yemen, which um, created the world's largest humanitarian crisis, according to the United Nations Human Rights Groups. This year, it is expected that two million children will die of starvation in Yemen. Saudi Arabia, of course, hails itself as a country of God and religion. The poem is called Sacrilegious. I'll trade you a mosque for a piece of shelter, a holy rock for a home with a wall, a prayer mat for a field with trees, a sacred book for a school demolished by your barbarian armies. I'll trade you the soil the prophets walked on for clean water and medicine. I'll trade you five prayers a day for one night without terror, without drones in the sky and tanks in the horizon. I'll trade you the promise of paradise, the rivers of milk, and honey for just a handful of money to feed the hungry. I'll trade you eternal heaven for a baby's breath in Yemen. Oh. 
add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of community-powered radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio. Um, and before the announcement, you were listening to a recording from the Black Palestinian Poetry Night that was held yesterday at the Drill Hall in Melbourne. Uh, you're tuning to Salam Radio so- Show. We'll continue with the recording and I uh, want to add there's a language warning in this one. So, um, yeah, if you tune out, uh, if you have kids, that would be best. Um, but yeah, I'll leave you with it. The next poet is Lani Yug and I will leave you with Michaela's introduction to her. Our next performer is Lani Yook. Lani Yook is a Larrakia Kungarakan and Gurundjian French writer and performer of poetry and short memoir. She contributed to the book Colouring the Rainbow, Black, Queer and Trans Perspectives in 2015 and has been published online in Jed Press and The Lifted Brow as well as in printed poetry collections such as UQP's 2019 Solid Air and 2020 Firefront. She received Canberra's noted Writers' Festival 2017 Indigenous Writers' Residency Overland's 2018 Writers' Residency and was shortlisted for Overland's 2018 Nakata Brophy Poetry Prize. She runs poetry workshops for festivals, moderates panel discussions and has given guest lectures at ANU and the University of Melbourne. She's currently completing her first collection of work to be published through Magabala Books. Please welcome Lani Finger on the map. This is mine now. Flag on the hill, it's the Union Jack invading the red, the yellow and the black. That attempt on genocide, it never did subside. They're busy filling the minds of black and white with lies. Hey, you mob, I got an idea, let's recognise. Fuck that shit, let's decolonise. Let's reprogram our minds and realise that we're all still slaves. Slaves to a system that took the children away, raped the women as their men lay in pools of blood, but oh no, wait, hold up. Slaves to a system that takes our children away, rapes our women as our men sway by ropes. A powerful people, but we weren't ready. Ready for a king that lacked integrity, ready for sickness and guns and big cities, ready to battle a man that didn't fight hand to hand but with poison and bullets and prisons. Fuck this system. Imperialism came by boat, then infiltrated our minds, arrived with the Bible, a forked tongue and a bottle of wine. There's no need to kill us when you're keeping us institutionalized. Now they're turning our suffering into dollar signs, turning our forest and our desert into uranium mines meanwhile. We're lowering our elders into early graves, leaning in to kiss the soft greys of their heads, only to turn around and bury our cousins next. 
Tonight we stand on the unrelinquished land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, knowing every single day that their sovereignty was never ceded and their resistance never fucking ended. Thank you. I have two more pieces for you. And I think for all the anger in this next piece, ultimately, I think it's a love poem. I rest my head on the window as the train gently rocks and I swallow my tears. I hate seeing you this way. Colonialism seems more ghastly in the countryside. Something about seeing cleared land where forests used to reside hits harder than concrete. Like maybe reclamation of land has potential and we could begin to heal right here in the soil. Like decolonization could be a verb and we could actualize our sovereign lives on our sovereign lands. But theoretical bare sovereign hand meets cold, sharp, twisted fences, meets privatized capitalism, meets white law, big guns, and we're straight back to where it all begun. There's something about seeing these old blue gums that makes me entertain fantasies of justice, or at least a time machine so I could unravel every atom of my being, time warp to that shoreline, meet with our ancestors, take a deep breath and put a bullet straight through the center of Cook's fucking head. There is something about seeing our lands dotted with pockets of familiar features as though without the sounds of swarming development, it is possible to hear countries' cries for help. Rather, the sight of hooved creatures reminds me of the regime country's immune system is yet to destroy. And I smile and I nod when she says she loves horses and pretend to be excited by the rabbits and cats and foxes. But I can't take the Traugan train line without an inward cry. From Central Station to Moi, from 1788 to 2021, from here until justice. Thank you. <clears throat> this um, final piece that I'm reading to you is a short memoir piece. Um, I will give a content warning, um, genocide, murder, and dare I say it, maybe hope. <laughs> um, and before I leave, I would like to pass on to you a thought that I've sort of been mulling over in the lead up to this event. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about change and we talk about being an accomplice versus an ally, um, having your stakes in this situation rather than sort of just being a passive witness. I've been thinking about when we talk about being a class trader 
you know, the redistribution of people's millions and billions and um, giving something up to affect change. And I was thinking what it would mean to be a settler trader to relinquish and to throw back all of the goodies that the colonial state gives you and all the threats that the colonial state gives you. If you don't comply, then you won't get these things in return and what it would mean to give that up to move towards real justice. My great Kungarakan Wetchi's name was Ali Ndabu. Stories of her are still shared amongst the older families in Darwin. Stories and memories shared of her walking into Darwin City back in the early 1900s, tall, lean, serious, with a pipe hanging out of her mouth. I imagine that she was a rather quiet and reserved person with serious eyes and often in deep contemplation. I think her demeanour and my imagining of it is a pretty measured and educated guess. Even though I never met her, I know that she carried the weight of many troubles. She married an Irishman and was living away from her tribe with their children when her family was sold rat poison instead of the common household ingredient bicarb soda. After eating the damper that had been lovingly prepared for the whole tribe, everyone at the campsite died violent, painful deaths. We don't know, and we'll probably never know who sold them the poison. I don't know exactly which chemical agent was responsible for killing my ancestors and family. I do know, however, that the popular chemical used in a lot of today's household rodent poisons is brodificome. Brodificome causes death in mice by thinning their blood so much that they hemorrhage. Brodificome also doesn't kill immediately, which means that other mice won't associate the sickness or death of their peers with the food that they're eating, so you'll get a further reaching and more successful kill. It creates an unquenchable thirst, so vermin will usually go in search of the water that will never satisfy their all-consuming drive and leave your house, which means less cleanup for you. Out of sight, out of mind. There are stories across this continent of similar exterminations of people, so overcome by thirst that they ran to water and drank and drank and drank until they couldn't hold themselves anymore and collapsed face first into the river, held in the arms of the water that tried to save them, that had always saved them since time immemorial, but on this occasion couldn't. I wonder how Ali Ndabu took the news that every member of her family was dead. That every person who had raised her, passed knowledge onto her, consoled her, had been murdered. I wonder who brought the news to her and how they told her. Did she scream? Did she collapse and wail like I imagine I would? Did she walk away and not come back for days to lie in the earth and cry? Did she pick up her children and wonder if the same person that killed hundreds of her family were coming for her toddlers? Again, I don't know. What I do know is that one way or another she got up, she worked, lived with her husband 
and raised her children to know our culture, our language and the stories of our people. When her husband died not long after, she was reminded again of her vermin status. Being a full-blood Aborigine woman with no husband, she was not qualified to own the land they had purchased, so it was again stolen from her. Because her children were half-caste, they were abducted by the state. I don't know how she took this news, that her last remaining family were being taken away. I don't know what she said to the authorities or what she said to her children, as I imagine they cried for their dead father and now for their mother. I don't know if they were taken by horse or by car, but I imagine Ali and Dabu held their hands as long as she could until she was shoved or pushed or threatened to let go. I imagine that she watched them drive or ride off into the horizon and watched her babies become smaller and smaller and smaller until she couldn't see them anymore. I don't know if she collapsed and cried or if she stayed tall and proud in the face of adversity. I do know that she walked kilometers to Darwin City and found a job working for rich white families so that she could stay close to the Carlin compound where her children were being kept until they were adults and permitted to leave. Having experienced some of the most aggressive and violent forms of colonialism and attempted genocide, I wonder how Ali and Dabu articulated her experience. I don't know if she had an understanding of the legal system or the concept of white supremacy, colonialism, erasure, possessive performativity, but I do know that her children grew into highly political and prominent activists. Where did that knowledge come from? I know that her grandchildren, such as my grandmother, are politically active and talented artists. Where did that drive come from? That her great-grandchildren, such as my dad, became and continue to be politically charged activists and artists. Where did that spirit come from? Where does that vision come from? And now here I am, the product of resilience in the wretched face of colonialism, death, murder, theft, child abduction, white supremacy. Why am I here? What drove Ali and Dabu to get back up in the face of insurmountable adversity when a foreign system has invaded your lands and has worked every possible angle to destroy you? What was she telling herself to lead to generations of activists and resistors? What did she tell herself late at night? Sore from cleaning the houses of her oppressors, aching from walking to Carlin Compound to carry scraps to her children. When she lay awake at night looking out at the stars, thinking of her family in happier times, probably haunted by the images of their gruesome deaths. Was she motivated by the past or possibilities of the future? Ali and Dabu is only one of the people that I'm here to tell you about. Ali and Dabu gives me strength in the face of this merciless machine that wants me dead just as much as it wanted her dead. But the other person I wanna to talk to you about who inspires me every day to overcome and achieve is called Manjuk. Manjuk is my great-great-granddaughter and I am her wetchie, her ancestor, her elder, the person she hears stories and legends of. Just as I live a life Ali and Dabu couldn't possibly have imagined with different freedoms and limitations, so too does my great-granddaughter. 
late at the night when I look out at the stars and I can't sleep and I'm tired and downtrodden and the news arrives that Adani will go ahead, that another brother was killed in police custody, another elder has died, another cousin is addicted to ice and fracking as all systems go. I think about Manjulk. So, the year is 2150 and Manjulk is in her car driving to the school where she teaches. The school is on a large block of land not far from the city which was once called Darwin but is now called Dangalaba, the shared totem of Latakia people who we are descendants of. The school covers all grades from kindy to university and sits on a large block of land that follows the curve of the ocean and has a vast array of healthy mangroves. The school was founded by her great-grandfather, my son, Daroa, and when she enters the school, she knows the names and family groups of every face that she meets. This school and the system by which it teaches was built and created by and for Latakia people. For the first 70 years, the school taught exclusively Latakia students, employing their parents and family as teachers, carers, trainers. Latakia law, health and well-being is primary and care for the surrounding land and beyond is always paramount. Because of this, country, animals, people and culture is strong and healthy. When Manjulk enters the grounds, she greets a group of children in Gulumirigin and they all chime back and respond with respect for their auntie. She has a full day ahead of her. A handful of students begin initiation today and will become adults when they've passed through. There's also a science school trip to be arranged and the coding curriculum to be approved. She's tired, but has been a part of and seen the generations of Latakia people who have passed through this school. She's seen what self-determination looks like and what it does for our people and our lands. Families have healed and reconnected with their sovereign selves. Children are happy and their first language is the language that was always spoken by their people. They learn of the European invasion that took place after thousands of years of prosperity and are taught to identify notions of supremacy in all its forms. But in this moment, they are gleefully eating their school-prepared breakfast that was cooked for them by the older students' Hermet class. Manjuk has a lot of work ahead of her. The settler state is still trying to enforce its own strategies and impose its ideals on our people, but she is determined. In the hallway, as she walks towards her office, she passes a faded photo of her ancestors, activists, artists, truth tellers, and somewhere in the mix she finds my face looking out at her. She doesn't know what I was thinking in that moment, but she imagines that I would be proud of her and everything that my granny has achieved. She promises me that she'll keep moving forward and thinks of her great-great-granddaughter and the world she will one day create. Our next performer is Lujane Harani. Lujane is a Palestinian writer, editor, arts worker, living on unceded Wiradjuri country. They're a 2020 recipient of the Wheeler Center Next Chapter Scheme. Their writing worries expectations of land, identity, and the relationship between the two. You can find their work in Mianjin, Overland, Australian Poetry, Going Down Swinging, 
among others. Please welcome Lushane. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm going to start with a poem called Chain Link Fence. Two years ago, I mapped our migration. I only went so far back. Me, my dad, his dad, and his dad. Four generations and a repeated pattern. This many kilometers. Then another number. Then the first number again, then the second. A call and response, like one person was saying, hey. And the next said, hey, back. When I sandwalk barefoot, the dunes swell into the arch of my soles. When my grandmother died, I walked six kilometers in the rain. My shoes had no grip. I watched a leaf drip like faucet, a magpie that looked lost. Hey, I am the hey back. My dad's dad was born in Hattin, in Palestine. He moved to Jish when he was three, but still he said, I'm from Hattin. And my dad says, my dad was from Hattin. And I say, my grandfather was from Hattin. When I returned, all that was left of Hattin was a mosque turned mostly to rubble, a tomb that had been refurbished, the rest paved over, repeated pattern of brick ending when it reached the slip, brick pattern like headstones, and then three corner shops. All in a row, blue light, it was nighttime, brick pattern to repopulate, brick pattern for the thousand bodies, and my dad, happy looking straight into the phone flash, arms wide, white teeth saying, hey, get a load of this, watched by the guard who let us in. Um, this next poem is called In Circle, um, and it's coming out in the next issue of VoiceWorks. Um, I wrote it last year when Everyone was posting about Palestine being removed from Google Maps. Um, even though that was not a new thing for Palestinians, we've been having this conversation for years. <laughs> we don't go viral when something happens. We go viral when someone finds out about it. I want to be unlidded and dribble, cast across gravel, loose like milk, like marbles, like custard, like spit on and between teeth. Put a brick down, put another one down, and another, and another, and another, and another until you have a circle, then build a second layer, and another, and another, and another, it is an open air fire pit, it is encircled in cement. Wrong half of the right city, but we buy the bread anyway. My dad's yoke doesn't ooze the way he asked it to. Step one is to have our road unwritten. Step two is to be told it hasn't been. Some things are made to slip their shell. Some stop when their skin does. I am looking at a map as I have always known it. Step one is to have our road unwritten. Step two is to see everyone else talk about it like the information was damned and it is finally leaking and wet and heavy, we should say, thank you, God bless you. You discovered my misery and that removes me from it. For 10 days, I sleep in Israel proper. I leave Al Uts in the morning, but by nighttime, I'm back. I go to Ramallah and then I leave it. I go to Yaffa and then I leave it. 
I go to Beit Lahem and then I leave it. I go to Nasra and then I leave it. I go to Akka and then I leave it. I go to Ariha and then I leave it. I go to Tarshiha and then I leave it. I go to Hattin and then I leave it. And then I leave Al-Uds. Um, this next poem is called I'm writing in vignettes because all we have are fragments. It rains on Eid al-Fitr. My family spends four hours in my living room without the heater on. We do not talk. We scroll and read and listen and scroll and sit and scroll and post my wa and watch my phone dies before dinner. It is always about footage. My friend DMs me, have you seen that video of Toni Morrison where she talks about how no matter how bad things got, she always knew that she was morally superior to the racists in the world. In 2006, Mr. Hernchak organized a fundraiser for Gaza. I was in year eight and proud and smug and excited that for a few days things were about us. I am writing in vignettes because all we have are fragments. On Monday, Israeli forces fire on Palestinians at Al-Aqsa. On Tuesday, I stay home from work. On Wednesday, we wake up to Israel bombs Gaza. On Thursday, I see a video of Israeli cops and lynch mobs breaking into a house in Haifa. The owners ramming back the door. If a screech had a body, it would vibrate like that. The camera is shaking. Someone has retweeted it with, this is Nakba. This is what happened to my family in 1948. Now we have footage. I'm writing in vignettes because it is always about footage. I do not know when this poem will be published, but by then these words will have fossilized. I do not remember my dreams last night, just fragments that return in whips, a ponytail, a clothes hanger, my dad, red plaid shirt, the tail of a prawn, chewing and swallowing. I read fascists among us on the tram to the protest to remind myself racists do have morals. They're just not good ones. Last year, we went viral, normalization. And in 2019, annexation. And in 2018, the march of return. It does not matter when this poem is published, these fragments always fossilize only to get dug up a year later. It storms the night before the protest, and the latch on my bedroom window has not been repaired. I lie back, I lie on my back and think of the rain and wind and hail teeming up to explode the brittle seams of plastic. Um, so this last um, poem is actually an excerpt from the manuscript that I'm working on right now. Um, it is about suffocation, settler colonialism, and BDS. Five months old and in flight. Five months old by a window that doesn't open because it's been engineered not to. High altitude makes my throat blister and then crunch, swallow, crunch. Born flying and landing and flying again, dizzy and trying to find the nearest chemist in between a flight and a train ride, a chemist to soothe the bile pushing against my throat, 
my throat that is boarded shut and popping. Cutting off its air supply is not murder, because you're almost dead. Cutting off its air supply is not murder, because the thing shouldn't exist. Strangle, strangle, no, that's not the right word. Maybe the word I'm thinking of is suffocate. No, maybe that's not it either. I just want to cut off its circulation until it says, give me back my oxygen. And I will say, no. Nothing ever really stops existing, even if you kill it. This is a good thing, because we do not want to die. Nothing ever really stops existing, even if you kill it. This is a bad thing, because burning a flag is not enough. And uh, to listen to, I mean, to read the rest of this beautiful poem by, and powerful poem by Lejeune Harani, you can follow her up and look out for her publication that's coming up, as well as uh, the poet before her, Lani York, has some really awesome publications coming up soon. So, um, yeah, if you're really if you're enjoying what you're hearing um, and want to support these amazing artists, uh, I recommend to follow them up and look up their publication. I had to cut off the last poem because we're running out of time and I want to give a bit of time for the last poet, uh, Tony Birch. Um, and I'll leave you with an introduction by Michaela Sa Sahar. I want to welcome our incredible last performer, Tony Birch. Based on the discussion I had with Tony beforehand, I don't think he would like to describe me, me to describe him as a poet, so I won't. <laughs> um, but I'll just say that Tony is a founding member of the Melbourne School of Discontent. He's published three novels, The White Girl, Ghost River and Blood. He's also the author of Shadowboxing and three short story collections, Father's Day, The Promise and Common People. In 2017, Tony was awarded the Patrick White Literary Award for his contribution to Australian literature. And in 2021, he'll release two new books, a poetry book, Whisper Songs, and a new short story collection. Thank you very much. I am reading from my new book, Whisper Songs, and the only reason I'm holding it up, other than you can buy it, um, is that the designer of this book is a woman called Jenna Lee, a Larrakia woman. Um, she's designed three book covers for me this year and she's a remarkable um, Aboriginal artist. And the book is edited by another Indigenous woman, Annie Tafu, um, and she's from Red Room Poetry in Sydney, also did the Soul Air Anthology, and they turned some pretty ordinary stuff into some reasonably stuff, yeah. So the poetry collection's divided into three sections, Blood, Skin and Water, and I'll just read um, a few pieces from each. Um, one piece will need your introduction, an introduction, the rest are self-explanatory. So the first poem I'll read is a poem called Women, and it's for my youngest of my four daughters, Nina. They boss street corners, floral dresses, cleavage lips, childbearing swaying hips. We watch from safety outside, touching distance, barely teenage boys with nothing to show for a wild imagination but school shorts and hairless skin. 
early paper round a woman naked in a window, still Sunday morning. She turns to me and waves, smiles at me. Her hair is thinning, eyes hazel, naked, open wounds in place of breasts. My nana lifted her skirt for me, varicose legs from a factory standing shifts. She forced my hand to a jagged scar, a braille story on a woman's skin, the mark of a man destroying love. The second poem away is for all my friends who were taken from family. Warmed hollow of a shared bed, a place where you once rested, away. Your breath singing, rising through morning air to fill the rooms of houses, the very life of you, away. Fingerprints marking time on a kitchen table, scars on a door frame, a bicycle wheel creaking its windmill in the yard, a mother's hand sweeping through locks of hair to untangle and savour, away. And along a dusty road running away from home to where secrets are held in ghosting whispers, your crying feet left to dance away. And from the first section, the last poem I'll read, um, this poem collection is dedicated to my younger brother who died very suddenly two years ago now and I found that I had to go away to Japan in the weeks after my brother's death. So this is called Finding You Outside Kyoto. Stone cats in red knits line a narrow canal. Sweetened water swirls, pots of fallen leaves, tan and stained hands, awaiting winters soon born. In the hills above the city, mist and mystery settle, climbing with you, weightless in the small of my back. Sweat trickles to skin. My heart suddenly shifts like a runaway clock. On the summit, snatching chilled breaths, I settle on a rock and wait for you. My body sways, stops dead, away from the home I anchor to. Fear escaped me here, finally, on a ridge of solid, solid stone. You held me, you covered me, we lay together on ground. And I'll move on to the middle section. And this narrative poem, it's from um, The Eight Truths of Khan. There are eight sections. Don't worry, I'll only read one. Um, these are narrative poems of the life of my great-grandfather, Bhutta Khan, who was a Muslim man from the Punjab, who was treated with great um, humiliation over many decades by the Australian government as part of its so-called White Australia policy and its infamous dictation test. Two, testimony presented to the collector of Her Majesty's Customs, Flinders Street, Melbourne, on the 26th day of June, 1916. I am Khan of 124 Young Street, Fitzroy, and I beg to apply for a certificate of exemption under the Immigration Act 1901, Section 4 to visit the country of India for a period of six months with my immediately, immediate family. On solemn oath, I undertake that I shall not return to Australia any relative, expired, revoked, of dark skin, dark eyes, foreign tongue, or pagan habits, peculiar dress, exotic produce, or accompanying animals, livestock or wild. 
I attach three character references and six unmounted photographs, free full face, free profile. Self-attesting to my good character, please allow me to state that on this day, 24th of June, 1916, I arose from bed and went into the bathroom to shave. In the cracked mirror, I saw a human being. I sat at the table in the kitchen with my wife and child. We breathed together and we ate a meal together. I then went to the wash house at the rear of the property and bathed my dark skin with disinfectant for some time. When I was satisfied that I had cleansed my physical body to the standard you require under Regulation 16, Section 2, I bathed a second time. Without your permission, my wife kissed my right cheek before I left the house for the working day. In the street, I greeted neighbours with a discreet nod of the head and they returned the gesture, with the exception of the butcher on the nearest street corner who cordially addressed me as nigger each morning. I hold, I hold no malice towards this man if I have not been granted permission by your department to do so. During my working day selling haberdashery and supplementary goods door-to-door -door in several neighbourhoods, I smile regularly and I rob no one. I do not look upon a white woman's body and when asked, I agree that yes, I am fortunate to be allowed to reside in such a fair and prosperous nation. That evening, I again sat with my wife and child. I again bathed and my wife and I shared the same bed. If my application to travel is granted, and if I am in fact allowed to return to this fine country without displaying a proficiency of language, Mandarin, please intimate the fact to me at the above address, yours faithfully, Mr. Butakan. Additionally note, the handprints of Butakan, both left and right, are on the back hereof, along with photographic evidence, both portrait and left and right profile. Okay, two more from this section. A matter of lives. Murder reduced to counting bodies, naming names, dates and days, processioning through plague streets, grief, a spectacle, feeding news, your life, no life, what life, which and whose fucking life matters. Blank headlines, faking news and tears cannot condone a living heart. A black woman asleep on a train is no news is good news until the day arrives and she becomes a fact of death, a number, the truth-telling face of your crimes of denial. And something a little different, waiting for a train with Thelma Plum. Penrith Station sits broken, a grieving heart in pieces, the platform a way station for essential workers living dead days of isolation. We have little time for each other and we envy those slumbering at home, flannelette pyjamas, sleep-ins, raisin toast and hot Milo, lazy fucking the days away to Netflix and Zoom. We slouch beaten, except for a girl in black, a kiss of life in black boots, black jeans and hoodie, black, yellow, red flag on her back, headphones ready to pounce. She moves, raises an arm, finch cless, hey, hey, fuck that. <laughs> 